we set up our nonprofit in Nevada. I gathered a board, filed the appropriate incorporation documents, a business plan, a website, and social media. Essentially, we were ready to go out and fundraise and start hosting events until Family Matters took precedence and I had to temporarily move for a few months across the country. My question is, can we still do events in our new state? So the short answer is yes, uh, but you really need to make sure that you're complying with each state. Each state's got specific requirements, and those oftentimes um, revolve around like charitable solicitation or or if you're going to be soliciting money. Um, There's oftentimes, it can be through different entities, but the Secretary of State or whomever in that state that you have to make sure you've registered, you've done all, you know, checked, dotted the I's, crossed the T's to make sure you are in compliance to be able to do that. And so you just, I think you have to weigh, I mean, part of this is, is it, is it worth it? I mean, is, is another few months, I don't know, I guess, I guess I would just, I, I think of this on a lot of different levels, right? It goes back to, it's a founder thing, right? Where this is what happens when it's, it's tough, when it's just you and there's not others there because it's, it's all dependent on you. And I know that, um, I know you shared some other side notes with us that you, you acknowledge that. So thank you for acknowledging that. And I also just think it's also about how do you, is it like do the cost benefit analysis? Is it, does it make sense for you to go, you know, whatever state, new state or what other states you're going to fundraise in, you know, do you want to go through if there's a filing fee to set up the form fee? Is, is that worth it for you? Or is it potentially more of a, an awareness building event where there's no money that is exchanging hands. And I know you need the money, but, but that you can, you can have that anywhere and, and there's no required, you know, you don't have to file something to do that. So that's my initial first blush answer. Andy, what are your thoughts? No, I think you're, I think you're exactly right. Every state does have different charitable solicitation laws. um, And you, a lot of times you need to file in multiple states if you're going to fundraise in different states and there's, and they're very, each state has different rules too. Um, So depending on what you're doing or how many people it is or how big the organization is, it's different for different states. Um, There is a a way to check them all at once. I don't know if it's been updated lately. Um, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but I will put it in the show notes today um, where you can go and look and see what all the different requirements are for different states. Um, And there used to be like a a common registration that you could fill out and you could pay somebody to basically register you in all the states all at once. I don't know if that still exists. Um, I'll put some more detail in the show notes once I figure that out. Um, so, so yeah, you can, you can totally do that. The, the other question I had, and Stacy mentioned that this question was very long. It's one of the longest questions we got and it had a ton of detail in it, which is awesome. Yes. Thank you. The one thing I didn't see in the detail is are you a 501c3? Where are you in the process of getting your your nonprofit uh, approved by the IRS for being able to take tax deductible charitable donations and not to have to pay income tax on your revenue, uh, your charitable revenue? Because uh, that information wasn't in the question and that changes the answer too. So if, if one of the things you can do, like you can set up um, in any state in the country, not just Nevada, in any state, you can go to the Secretary of State's office, you can file and create a nonprofit entity. It's like just basically like creating a new corporation. You're creating a corporation and you select that it. it's a nonprofit corporation. That in and of itself doesn't make you uh, a, a federal 
federally approved 501c3, which is something that you have to do by filing a form called the 1023 with the IRS. So if you haven't filed the 1023, the answer is going to be different, um, which is you can't really do fundraising and tell people that they can take a tax deduction for their donation um, if you haven't gotten that piece of it, um, even though you filed in the state and you've got a nonprofit in the state. So you may not have to pay state taxes, but a lot of times the state relies on you having done the 1023 and makes you file the 990 that you do for the federal government with the state as well. And again, that's state by state. It's completely different. Um, but but you can't take a, a charitable donation off your taxes if you don't have a 51C3, if you're donating to someone without a 51C3. So um, that may be just me you know, just talking <laughs> because you've already got that handled and it wasn't in the question. But that's something if that you don't have that set up, um, that's something you're going to want to look into, too. Absolutely. And the one final thing I would add is just just keep in mind, sometimes people say, oh, what's you know, what's really going to happen to me if I don't register in the state to do, you know, charitable solicitation or fundraising? And the reality is, is that there are plenty of situations and examples out there of, of failure to do this, right? Not not filling out that form, not following whatever that state's rules are could result in penalties. And like, that's the last thing you want when you're just starting out. So I, I say, if you are going to do this and you do decide to move forward, um, you know, just do it properly because it's it's also a good habit to get into because that's you're going to be doing a lot of that stuff, <laughs> making sure you comply with with the rules, regulations, tax law, all the stuff, right? You, you got to make sure nonprofits have a whole lot of additional layers of scrutiny that uh, for-profit businesses don't always have. So nonprofit government, nonprofit answers, nonprofit board, nonprofit management, nonprofit marketing, nonprofit resources. Welcome to Nonprofit Everything. The podcast where hosts Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding answer your questions about all things nonprofit. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. Um, happy Halloween. <laughs> I know I'm not supposed to do that because sometimes these get taped in a weird order and things don't happen, but I'm pretty sure that this one's going to be for the Halloween episode. So, um, it's also really windy here in Las Vegas. And so you get full like NPR mode where Stacy and I both sound like we're talking from the bottom of a well, which is nice. <laughs> so I hope everybody's um, allergies aren't killing them too much and um, that you've got enough candy for the little rats that'll come to your house and steal it in a few days. Um, and we've got some good questions this today that we got for the last couple of weeks. And just as a reminder, the podcast kind of runs on questions. If we get questions that gives us something to talk about, if not, we talk about kids and pets, which no one wants to listen to. So send us those questions and we'd be happy to answer them. If we don't know the answer, we go out to a guest expert and get the guest expert to answer them. And so we appreciate you taking the time to listen to us today. And with that, we're going to jump right into it. The board I am on has had some issues, including losing their 501c3 status for failing to file their 990 for three years. At a recent board meeting, it was discussed that our new auditor recommended that the bookkeeper should be fired and the chair should step down due to issues regarding a lack of proper oversight. Note, we are an all-volunteer board with no support staff. During the discussion, the chair declared their resignation and abruptly left the meeting. The remaining board members voted to accept the resignation and continued on with the meeting. 
A week later, the chair said he didn't resign and that a verbal resignation didn't count. Our bylaws don't say that a resignation needs to be written or verbal, just that it has to be accepted by the board. So my questions are, number one, can a board member resign verbally and is it acceptable or does it need to be in writing? Number two, is it the role of an auditor to recommend that the bookkeeper should be fired and the chair removed? And number three, do we have any recourse if the chair insists on coming back? Wow, 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 wow. This holy one's a doozy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it is holy enchiladas. Goodness. Um, I had to read this like five times because I was like, wow, this is messy on a hundred levels. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Well, I will jump in and at least answer, you know, try to answer questions one and three uh, that are tied to the board. And I'll, I'll kind of recap as we go. But uh, so the first question, right, can a board member resign verbally and is it acceptable or does it need to be in writing? I mean, the short answer, and I know the person said it wasn't in their bylaws, it's it's really wise to have these details in your bylaws. Does it have to be a written resignation to be accepted? Does it? Does the board have to accept it for it to be uh, official? Um, I mean, that's a whole other story. I had an organization once where they would not accept their board member's resignation. And it was this, it got into this really weird legal battle because the board member was like, well, uh, I resigned and I'm not, you, you're not like beholden, I'm not beholden to you forever. Right. And so anyway, that was messy. And that's a whole other probably question and story and saga. But, but the short answer is it's great if you can have a little more detail around this in your bylaws or some of your policies, but since it wasn't, um, then the, the key of it really becomes that the board voted to accept this verbal resignation and that holds so the the majority of the bo- uh, vote of the board determines if it if it's a resignation or not, and and really the fact that it was not written because there's nothing that prohibits that in the bylaws it, it really becomes irrelevant um, as it w- it was done in a convened board meeting one that has minutes and one where the the majority vote of the board stands. So then kind of piggybacking off that, jumping to question three, before I have you jump into two, Andy, do we have any recourse if the chair insists on coming back? I mean, the short answer is, I don't think, I mean, if you accepted that verbal resignation that quickly in that meeting, like, wow, like, I mean, first of all, I was a little bit stunned because I thought, wow, that's a whole lot to digest. Your board chair leaves abruptly during a board meeting. And then you all say, and says, you know, he resigns and you all say, we're voting and yes, we're voting and accepting that resignation. Like that's just a lot of quick action and a lot of like, I was just, I was just trying to, I've never seen something like that happen before, but I was like, so is there a reason if this person, if this board member board chair storms out, I also think perhaps, perhaps because you voted so quickly to accept that resignation. I I mean, I'm reading between the lines here, but maybe you actually were really happy that the board chair did that because you were like, yeah, this, this person's volatile or whatever. But keeping the facts with the facts, if the board believes, you know, a, a week or two later, that board chair comes back and says, listen, I, I acted in a moment of haste. I was really reactive because I was so incensed by, by what the auditor recommended that um, if, if the board chair comes back and obviously not in a formal capacity, but reaches out in a different capacity, email, phone, whatever, and says they'd like to come back on the board or, or, or says, I, you know, I, I really, you can't count that against me. I mean, you have to inform the person. Yes, the board took a vote. Yes, the board accepted your resignation. 
So we need to go back and convene our board to discuss whether we want to, uh, you know, come back and make a motion to reappoint you uh, and and do whatever else we need to do to clean this up. But that is not just, uh, yes, uh, we're going to ignore what you did and ignore the board vote. The board voted. We need to go back and go through the process that that needs to be upheld just for proper governance and make sure that we have a board discussion. And then we will let you know of the outcome. But golly, this is, this is complicated. I, I just, um, I've never seen anything like this happen. Have you, Andy? Um, no, not to this. I mean, this is like sort of the perfect storm. It was like, as I was reading this, I was thinking there are no heroes in this situation. No, like the, the, the behavior of, all of the board members in this situation makes me think that probably if I were counseling this group on what to do next, it would be if you have any assets, maybe you should transfer them to another organization that's working in the same space because they might have their act together and can get some work done. And maybe it's time for you guys to call it quits because, you know, this is not like, first of all, it's it's not the bookkeeper's fault that the 501c3 hasn't been filed, the 990 hasn't been filed in three years. That's nope. the board's fault. Yep. And that's not the board's chair's fault. That's the nope. whole board's fault, which exactly. includes the person writing the question. Um, so I think digging into the, de- I mean, I think it's fun to dig into the details because they're interesting sort of technical questions on how do you deal with these kinds of situations, but sort of on a bigger picture level, like this is, this place is a mess. Yeah. <laughs> so, and so, Going back to question one, can a board member resign verbally? Like Stacey said, yeah, it should be in writing, right? You, you want it to be in writing because then you've got it in writing, right? It's actually different for different states too. So some states have specific laws about how nonprofit boards need to be managed. Some let it roll, kind of like Nevada lets it roll pretty much all the way down to the bylaws, but there are some specific requirements and they're usually specific requirements like um, you can't you can't fire the board chair if the board chair doesn't know about the meeting where they're being fired. Right. And so yep. that would be something that I'd wonder about in this situation. Right. If, if, you know, if the board member said, you know, said a swear word and stomped out of the room and slammed the door and then the board just assumed that was a resignation. Right. <laughs> and That's then true. proceeded yeah. to vote on the, on the swear word, <laughs> which may or may not have been a resignation. I might, I might suggest yes. that perhaps the board, the board chair was not, uh, was not duly notified that the meeting where um, his resignation was being <laughs> discussed was, was, um, was, that he didn't know that that was going to happen right then. It sounds like he might not have known, but you know, at the same time, like this isn't a high school cafeteria lunchroom situation either. Right. Where you're like, well, you're not allowed at our table anymore. Well, I want to be at your table now. Well, we voted and you can't be at our table. Like that's not <laughs> how this nonsense works. So, so you need to like, everybody needs to grow up a little bit, you know, put on their big boy pants and have a human conversation between adults that says like, here's what's going on. Like, how do we fix this? How do we get out of this situation? Like, cause if the board chair just wants to come back out of spite, I mean, this, this is silly. Like if seriously, if I can't imagine, first of all, I don't think I would ever storm out of a board meeting um, and say I quit. Um, but if, the board didn't want me. I don't know that I'd want to come back to be board chair, especially of an organization that's lost its 501c3 status for failure to file 990s for three years. I mean, this feels like this is like who wants to be in this situation at all. Um, 
So, you know, do you have any recourse if the chair insists on coming back? I mean, you're adults, figure it out. Like, and the yeah. last thing you're going to want to do is yanking a whole bunch of attorney attorneys to shout at each other. Like that's just going to cost the organization more money that you don't apparently have. Um, I don't, I don't know. This is just a, it's a mess of a situation. Well, and there's so many, <laughs> you, you bring up a point. We weren't there. So it's really tough to yeah. guide. We don't, we don't know what state this happened in and we weren't there. So so it's tough to know. Yeah. Was it, was it just, I, you know, was it officially I quit and I'm storming out or you're <laughs> or right. It was it, like, a, was it, yeah, and then yeah slam exactly, the door. <laughs> exactly. And I think that does make a difference. So, uh, but good grief. Like it, it feels very junior high, mm-hmm. very junior high. And so it is about, and, and, you know, and it does strike me, doesn't it strike you as a little odd that in the midst of that, you would have your bearings as a board. I mean, just think about the boards, you know, and so this happens this person like dashes out. Do you think you'd even have the right frame of mind or think it was prudent to in that moment then do a vote to accept the resignation? <laughs> yeah. That feels strange to me. Uh, except, Very that, strange. except that everybody already hated that guy for That's reason true. Z, right? And so yeah. that this was their opportunity to finally yank their. I mean, it's just like you guys Ugh. shouldn't be playing in this pool. It's this. Nonprofits are for grownups, and you guys haven't demonstrated that you've reached that bar. Um, so let's talk. Can we talk about question number two? And for those of you that didn't write down the question as, as I was reading it, question number two is, is it the role of an auditor to recommend that the bookkeeper should be fired and the chair be removed? Um, not any professional auditor nope. ever, ever, ever. So what an auditor does. So for, so for those of you that don't haven't lived through this, so an auditor's responsibility is to do two things. They they look at the the financial statements that have been generated by the staff and or the board or whoever generates the financial statements, the bookkeeper. Look at the financial statements and then and then do enough testing to be able to say one or two things. And one is like seems right. Like in my opinion, this, you know, seems to be put together properly, right? That's all they say. They don't say it's correct. They don't say they checked all your work. They say it looks kind of, it looked right to me, right? Which is sort of a soft way of saying, like, I didn't find any huge gaping holes. And part of their testing involves like going through the process to see if there are any huge gaping holes. Like, how come you've never done a bank reconciliation? How do you know that the numbers in the system and QuickBooks are the ones that match reality? Or did you know that there's this gaping hole in your internal controls and somebody could be like shoveling money out the back door and no one would notice because of this particular thing, right? So they, that's the other thing they do is kind of check to see if the sort of the overall structure of the organization is protecting the, the financial assets, things like that. And then if they do find things, there are, a couple, there are two things they can do. They can either um, give you a, a not good opinion, which is it's so instead of saying, you know, we've looked at this and, and, you know, we, in our opinion, you know, it looks like it's probably right. At least one thing they can say. The other thing they can say is like, <laughs> and, and actually there are three things they say. The other thing they say is, is usually like, you know, I don't have enough information to be able to say if this is right or not, which means, you know, in polite auditor speak, this is a mess and I can't figure out what's true and what's not true. And you guys need to fix it. Right. Um, so that's the the middle opinion, and that's really the bad one. And then only in like really rare circumstances does the auditor say anything like this is wrong, right? That's like that's when when that's like the hugest red flag of all is if the auditor says that the picks the third option, which is like this is incorrect. 
Um, and then the other thing they provide usually is, at least a good auditor, will provide something called a management letter. And so the audit itself is usually public. I mean, it doesn't have to be, but somebody asks you, can I see your audited financial statements? You generally want to say yes, because if you say no, that's another huge red flag. And so they'll ask for the audit. Um, and then they can look through all of the auditor's notes and everything and kind of make their own opinion based on what the auditor provides, whether or not they want to trust the organization. And then the, the one that goes directly to management is called the management letter. And the management letter a lot of times has a lot more detail in it. And it is things like, as we were testing, we found out that you know the person that is picking the mail up from the post office box and checking all the checks and entering it into the accounting system and taking the checks to the bank is all the same person, which means that you've given them an opportunity to put half the checks in their pocket, right? So they'll, they'll point out the internal controls problem, these problems they find, um, things that were done improperly. You know, if, if you, you know, the, the person that's doing the books doesn't, doesn't totally understand accounting 100% and may book things in crazy ways. They may point out, oh, by the way, this number is overstated by this much because of this, um, but it wasn't enough for an audit finding, which is sort of the higher level, but it's like, we're going to tell the manage management about it. Um, I have never, in my career, I have never seen an auditor recommend anything about staff, about saying that someone's unqualified or someone doesn't know how to do their job. They'll talk about actions. They'll say, no bank recs have been done for the last 12 months, which is, you know, code for somebody needs to do bank recs and the person you hired is probably not the right person for the job because everybody should know that. Right. But they've never going to they're never going to say they should be fired. And any conversation about the board chair is just straight up out of scope. Right. So that's they're not being they're not being hired to talk about like big picture governance activities. They're really, it's generally a financial audit and they're talking about, and, and they do look at like, do we have board meetings? How, how often do you have board meetings? They'll want to look at the board minutes. And it's really just to make sure that the staff is complying with the things that the board is telling you. So if the board says, you know, we need you guys to do audited, we need you guys to do a cash flow statement every and provide that to the um, board meeting every quarter or whatever, and then the staff isn't doing it, then the auditor can point that out too, right? But they don't really have any, there's there's no cause for them to say that the board chair should have, should be fired or anything like that. That's crazy. I've never seen that. And if, I mean, I'd love to hear from anybody. If anybody listening has ever heard of anything like that, I'd, I'd love to talk to whoever your auditor was and see where they got the, where they got the authority to have those kinds of conversations with your organization, because that's not yeah. their role. Well, and there's a whole lot of, I mean, this whole situation is so, it's crazy on all the levels. I mean, yeah. it's just, so, so it's just, I'm sitting here shaking my head and I have not seen that either, Andy. And I also, I mean, I have found auditors tend to be, I mean, just, just the nature of the work and the scoop of work. It is about systems. It is about accuracy. It, it's not about a person. It's never about a person, right? I've never, ever, because it's about here's the systems or the internal controls or whatever the, whatever the, you know, whatever are these things that can be corrected, right? But it's not about the, this person because the auditor isn't even getting into the weeds on that. Like who does what and who, it's about like larger picture. And so, and more objective, it's about, it's about systems, process, policy, like not this other gunk about, well, shame on you, board chair. And I mean, and even that shows the person doesn't know the first thing about governance. I mean, right. even even if, right? Even let's play that out. Pretend that the board chair really did all the culpability lay, like was at the board chair's foot. Then 
I still don't think it's appropriate for the auditor to do it. But 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 even worse, it's it's not one person's fault. And then, you know, anyway, I just I could go down the rabbit hole with this. Right. And and then you go, well, why would you say the board chair and then not the board treasurer? If you're going to go down that line of thinking, it just like poking holes on even the wacky thinking to begin with is hard to do because it's so it's so outrageous on, mm-hmm. on every level. And and a pro auditor is going to come in and and instead of like giving you weird detail like that, they would say, based on our based on our audit, we're unable to provide an opinion. Right. That's yeah. going to be the worst case scenario yes. for this organization, which is like you guys are such a mess that I can't even I don't even be involved with you. I don't mind my name anywhere near your organization. You're going to have to find another auditor to come in and say something because I'm just going to say, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Oh, it's a doozy. So uh, best of luck. <laughs> best of luck um yeah i i i'd go for door number c which is get I the agree. heck out i agree get the heck out uh fold up the organization yeah transfer those assets to someone transfer else for those assets uh, yeah. to someone who knows what they're doing please yeah We are looking to start up a nonprofit, and we've heard that the IRS can now take 18 months to respond. Do we really need to wait that long to start fundraising and starting our programs? I'm just going 18 months. I haven't heard that. Have you, Andy? Yes. Yes. I mean, it's 18 to 24 right now. Really? Yep. Yep. Whoa. I wonder if you can fast track it. You know how they have that special fee where you can fast track it? You can. Yeah, you can fast track it with a special fee. It basically costs more money to get closer to the front of the line. It's one way one way to solve this. Wow. I just, yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm still just blown away because <laughs> I, I haven't talked to anyone recently who has filed and I'm just going to, I, I, it used to be you could say three to six months. And now, I mean, guess what? It's the state of our world. I feel like that with everything, right? So everything is taking longer. Everything is just slowed down. Uh, but Anyways, I mean, I think at least my response, I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting um, with these kinds of things is you hear it all the time. People are like, I'm anxious to get started. And so at the end of the day, you can go ahead and start fundraising and doing your work. You also need to inform people, particularly your donors uh, from a from the 501c3 status, if they are looking for a tax deduction or any of those things. Um, you need to inform them, right? So if you get that contribution of whatever, someone mails you a check or does an online donation for 300 bucks, um, I mean, you need to let them know, listen, our status with the IRS is pending. Uh, Once once we receive it, um, donations theoretically will retroactively, like your donation, um, while while the application was pending, it may, you know, may be treated as tax-deductible contributions retroactive to the date, of, of the organizations, our organization's formation. But if we're not approved, right, contributions would not be considered tax deductible. And um, you've just got to be really forthright with that. Uh, and, and one of the ways around it, and I know, Andy, you and I have talked about fiscal sponsorship a lot, but if you can find a nonprofit that will serve as basically your organization's fiscal sponsor. So a nonprofit that's got the 501c3 status already, oftentimes for a fee or some other type of arrangement, um, they can kind of be that umbrella organization for you for the time being um, and allows you to fundraise, at least I say legitimately from a standpoint of someone that's already got the 501c3. There's a lot of other details tied into that that we don't necessarily have to go into here, but 
But that's another way that is usually quicker and offers that other solution so that you can you can get some of those contributions while you're waiting for your exempt status. Did I get anything wrong there, Andy? Uh, no, the just the tax deductibility of a gift given to an organization that hasn't yet given its gotten its 501c3 status approved by the IRS. It's still deductible at the time that you give the gift. It's just that you may get a note from the nonprofit two years later that says, oh, by the way, turns out that wasn't deductible because we didn't finish the process or we got declined and couldn't get it through or whatever, um, at which case you need to file some additional paperwork to correct it. Um, so you don't actually have to wait until they get their 501c3 to take the deduction. You're taking the deduction now and then correcting it later if it's wrong. A lot of donors don't want to get anywhere near that, um, which is why a fiscal sponsorship is such a smart idea. The other thing a fiscal sponsorship does for you, too, is that they're going to ask you an awful lot of questions about your nonprofit, about how it works, how you've got it set up, your bylaws, your governance, all that kind of stuff, which is sort of a good training ground to make sure you've got all that stuff in place because they don't want any, you know, they, they need to protect their 501c3 and any, you know, slob who walks in with like, I've got this great idea for a nonprofit, <laughs> right? They, they want to weed out the people that are just dumb. So so that makes you walk through a lot of extra steps, which are actually good sort of practice for the things that you're going to have to do once you actually get your 501c3. So and, and there, there are organizations that do that. That's all they are. They're just big fiscal sponsors. And so you don't have to like, you know, dig to find it. If you if you type fiscal sponsor into a search engine, you will get several hits and then you can start doing your research from there. Yeah. And I would also add to manage expectations. It is tough when you're just starting out. It, it's one of the toughest stages to raise money. I mean, you tend to raise it right from family and friends and and those who are close to you or you've got these relationships with that it's it's a very kind of personal, I want to support you as the person who founded this. Uh, it, it tends to lean a lot on that generosity of, of friends and family versus out the outside world, right? Corporate America. If they're looking to sponsor something, most likely they're not going to look at a brand new organization, particularly if you're looking at go, uh, competing for grant applications, I mean, some of them even say you have to have been in existence and had your 501c3 for three to five years, or you can't even apply till you have a 501c3. And if you do that with a fiscal sponsor, then there's that layer of is a fiscal sponsor, depending on how they're structured, are they are they going after similar funding? So so there's and then you have to negotiate or figure out because that fiscal sponsor could ultimately say, no, you're not going after that. Um, and I would say a lot of grantors also don't love fiscal sponsors as far as giving grants. So I just want to level your expectations too, because I know people, when they start out, they're excited. I've got this amazing idea. And hopefully you did all the stuff that you should do before you go and set up, you know, your 501c3, like research if there's other organizations doing anything remotely close to it. But that's a whole other story and one we've we've tackled on here on this podcast before. But but I do think it's just people get bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, excited about their idea, and they think everyone is going to give them money for it. And I just, I don't want to be a buzzkill, but the reality is it's probably going to be tough, and you're going to probably be leaning on a lot of those kind of close relationships in your life until you get a, a little more time behind you and an impact behind you.
You've done it. You've made it through yet another episode of Nonprofit Everything, and we hope you enjoyed it. And what makes it enjoyable are your questions. So as always, your call to action is to send us a question. No matter how small, how big, we take them all. Sometimes we get the extra juicy ones. We love those. And we know that you love those too, because that's probably why you listen is what are the juicy ones? So anyways, we all have juicy stories in our life. So so send us yours. And uh, I just want to say that we're we are getting a ton of questions lately. So kudos and thanks to you. We, we've gotten a lot recently. So I don't know if you heard the desperation in our voices or what. <laughs> but thank you for that. And keep them coming.